After the Virus, episode 24. Brought to you by After the Virus, a survivalist journal, just $2.99 at Amazon.com. George R.R. R. Martin, author of The Game of Thrones, has said, I like my fiction to be unpredictable and enjoys characters that he doesn't know if they're going to live or die. While the virus killed seven billion, the inhumanity of man continues to kill, even our most beloved characters. Grab your tissues. No one ever promised a happy ending. When last we heard from Hope, shots had been fired at Keisha's boat. We lost sight of Keisha's boat. Then about 10 long minutes later, we heard the rattle of machine guns. Ron from boat number two had a view of the bridge from a high point on shore and shouted, They flashed the come ahead signal. Let us go on and we'll flash you to confirm that everything's okay. In another 10 minutes, we got the signal and all started out. There were far fewer wooded sections along this stretch. We had to go a couple of miles before we could pull over to learn what had happened. It was now 6 a.m. There's not a lot of cover for the next few miles, and I don't want to get to the Tisdale camp in daylight, so I think we should pull over here and lay low for the day, announced Keisha. We dragged the boats under a decent canopy. There were a couple of independents on the bridge, explained Keisha. They took a couple of shots at us as we approached. But fortunately, there was a big pump structure on river left that we were able to pull the boat behind. We got out and snuck along the levee until we saw them still waiting for us on the bridge. They never saw us, and the machine guns made short work of them. We checked them out, and there was nothing about them that suggested militia or any organized effort. Just a couple of good old boys that picked the wrong boat to target practice on. We pulled out our tarps which we staked on four corners for a low rain cover. We made a pot of mint tea from the lemon balm plants around us and got to know some of the Calusa group better. Ethan, Matt, and I sat with Madison, who had been a champion high school gymnast and talked about her experiences over the past year. Matt had attended Chico State, where he was studying to be a computer game designer. The last year has been crazier than any game I ever could have imagined, said Matt. Seeing people shot and blown up is not nearly as fun in real life as it is on a computer game. To which Madison replied, I watched my parents shot in front of me. Then I killed the fucker who did it, and I liked it. I told the story of my family being mutilated by a gunship, and how Will found me. Ethan asked, Will we ever be normal again if we make it through this? To which we all shook our heads. March 7. This is Laurel. It has been three days since we lost Hope. I am taking over the journal that Will began and Hope has kept for months. Three nights ago, we departed our camp just below the Meridian Bridge. We had been warned that the Tisdale refugee camp had not been heard from for many days and feared they had met with bad luck. We approached the Tisdale Weir with trepidation. Keisha was familiar with the location of the camp. We found it ransacked, along with the bodies of the inhabitants. 
We did not spend any time there, but immediately continued downstream. Shortly after leaving, we heard helicopters in the distance. We started our engines and raced for shore, ramming our boats onto a thin section of gravel shore and began pulling the boats into the vegetation. The first six boats were on shore, setting up their weapons when the gunship appeared. The last two boats, one carrying Ethan and Hope, the other with Katie, Aiden, Matt and Ashley, were still heading towards the bank when the helicopter began shooting. A missile hit next to Ethan and Hope's boat, tossing it into the air and capsizing it. Another missile hit the last boat square on. completely destroying it. The pilot was so intent on the boats in the water that he failed to see us in the bushes, which gave us time to get all the weapons functional. We fired pretty much every weapon we had. And the helicopter exploded and crashed onto the opposite bank. We immediately pushed the boats into the water to look for survivors. There was virtually nothing left of boat four. Bits and pieces of wreckage and ghastly human remains littered the water. Boat three had not taken a direct hit. We found Ethan floating lifeless in his flotation vest. Chris and Heather took him to shore and administered CPR. Will, Jessica, and I continued to look for hope salvaging floating equipment as we did so. The boats from the Calusa group assisted us with the search. After more than an hour, we could only conclude that Hope had drowned. Will was distraught, and we were all traumatized by the loss of a large part of our group. We need to get away from here, ordered Keisha. The pilot would have reported seeing us, and we'll be expected back. The only good thing to come out of the encounter was that the CPR had worked on Ethan, who was recovering in Chris and Heather's boat. There's a water reclamation plant just a mile downstream that we may be able to find cover at. Follow me. The remaining six boats raced downriver for perhaps 10 minutes. Then on the right-hand side of the river below us was a large industrial-looking facility with a pier-like structure that ran parallel to the bank. Fencing that had protected the underside of the pier had been cut, and the void was just large enough for us to scrape our boats through. There was only about three feet of space under the structure, so we all had to duck and lay our deck-mounted guns down flat to fit underneath. It was like being in a cave, and if we were found out, it would be a death trap. But the only way to see us was at water level. We were completely hidden from above. Ten minutes later, a second helicopter came racing up the river with bright lights glaring at the water's surface. We watched it go by. Then Chris climbed up onto the pier and yelled down to us that it was circling the area where the first copter had gone. It spent half an hour searching the river where our boats had been destroyed, presumably looking for anyone left alive. Apparently satisfied that both the helicopter crew and the boat passengers were dead, it lifted back off, 
shut off its lights and headed back to wherever it had come from. With the urgency of escape momentarily past, we all had time to dwell on what had happened upstream and our loss. Will was withdrawn and unapproachable. Ethan sobbed silently as Heather and I dressed some gashes he had received when the boat was capsized. The Calusa group had been fortunate to not suffer any casualties and did everything they could to console and comfort us. Sunrise was not far off when Keisha solemnly announced, We'll spend the day here, share some food, shed some tears, and get some sleep. I put my arms around Will and without a word just held him as he stared out into the darkness. Finally, he said, I stayed alive for her and because of her. I'm not clear what my purpose is here anymore or why I should keep going. I waited a long time before replying. You gave her another year of life that allowed her to experience much more than she would have. Nothing was more important to her than you. She would want you to go on, to see it through, whatever it is. Will dropped his chin to his chest, and we just sat there in silence. I know how this feels. It's how I felt when Jared died. Except I was completely alone in the wild. I think this was Hope's, said Jackson as he leaned from the boat immediately ahead of us and handed us the black pack that Hope always wore. Thank you, Jackson. Yes, it was. Inside, double-wrapped in two-gallon-sized Ziplocs, the cover bound with duct tape, was this journal. The one Will had started so many miles ago and Hope had taken over once Will lost his hand. The one that I am honored to continue now. We mourned and slept all day in the damp coolness under the low pier. The group rose and ate around 4 p.m. As we were eating and generally preparing to leave, Keisha spoke. Brothers and sisters, we have endured a sorrowful few days. We have lost friends, new and old, relatives and loved ones. We have spent the last year fighting and waiting for a solution for an end to this catastrophe. That end may be within our grasp. We have come so far, some much farther than others, but we still have a long ways to go and not very much time to get there. Now is the time that we show our strength, our resolve. We are survivalists, not just survivors of a global pandemic, but those who have prevailed against every obstacle thrown our way. We must make it so that all that was good about humanity is not lost. And so that those that choose darkness do not inherit what is left of civilization. This inspirational pep talk helped raise us out of our depression and refocus on our objective. The next camp is in the Fremont Weir Wildlife Area, stated Keisha as we began moving out from under the pier. To get there, we will have to pass under the low bridge at Knight's Landing. There are a number of tall structures there that have a view of the river. We would portage around it if we could, but with no trailers, it would be nearly impossible. We'll have to be very cautious approaching it. The Fremont people were expecting us a couple of days ago. We sent a pigeon the day we left Calusa. With that, we began floating again. 
Everyone was still on edge from the helicopter attack, and being back on the moving water brought back memories. Fortunately, we heard and saw nothing out of the ordinary the entire float to Knight's Landing. Approaching the bridge, we could smell smoke and see flames. We were at the top of a long, straight stretch of river with a minor road running adjacent on the East Levee. Thomas and Grace, make your way to the bridge by foot and have a look around and let us know what's going on up there. We had all saddled our boats along the east bank. The two jumped out of their boat, climbed the levee, and began jogging the half mile to the bridge. After a long wait, Grace and Thomas came back, with two others in tow. Friendlies! Thomas shouted as they approached. We were intrigued, and as they reached the boat, Grace explained. When we got to the bridge, we could see these two standing on it, chatting. We had good cover and our guns pointed at them, so we decided to get close enough to see if we could learn anything from their conversation. As it turns out, they are from the Fremont camp. They came up here to clear out any snipers and watch for us. Welcome, fellow survivalists. I'm Brock, and this is Tessa. There was a sniper in the old brick bridge tower. We didn't see any good way to get him out other than a mortar. A little overkill, but it did the trick. Thank you, said Keisha. Hop in and let us float you back to your camp. Oh, our boat is just below the bridge, Tessa said. That would be great. Then we'll lead you to Fremont. Once they had retrieved their boat, it was only another mile before they turned off of the main channel and into an abandoned bend in the river, which was still and choked with vines and valley oaks. Here next to a slough, covered with wild grapes, was an old, collapsed barn that served as a camp for the Fremont group. Fremont is a small outpost with only six rebels, all of whom were at the bank to help us out of the boats. You tripped the alarm when you entered through the slough, so we were expecting you, said Sheila, a congenial older woman with short gray hair. Come into our humble dwelling and break bread with us. A long table, looking as though it was made from the timbers that once held up the barn, was set for us with a large steaming pot of boiled grain. There are lots of wild grains and volunteer rice around us here. We eat like kings and queens, said Sheila. We relayed the story of our trip and the attack near Tisdale. I'm so sorry to hear about your loss and the slaughter of our comrades at Tisdale as well, said Sheila in a low voice. It seems you can't have survived this long without becoming intimately familiar with death in many forms. But it never gets easier. A part of you just locks it away until you eventually have to deal with it. We finished our meal in silence. Well, I really didn't mean to depress everyone, <laughs> began Sheila again, this time cheerily. We have some big choices to make regarding our route. We have some militia hot spots up ahead, Sacramento Airport just off the river, and then Sacramento itself, which the river flows right through. If we want to stick to the boats in the river, we'll have to float past the airport but we can avoid most of the city by jumping over into the deep water shipping channel. If we want to avoid both, we can travel by land till we're past both and then switch back to the shipping channel. Of course, then we'll have to find new boats. 
Sheila laid a map on the table, which we all gathered around as she pointed out the pinch points, places where there was increased likelihood of encountering trouble along the river. Then she traced out a route that avoided the airport, the city, and was largely devoid of people, the long agricultural swath of the Sacramento bypass. The bypass was created as a wide overflow channel to accommodate flooding of the Sacramento River. By sending the water into the bypass via the Fremont Weir, where we are now, the city could avoid catastrophic flooding in very wet years. Because it was designed for floodwaters, building inside the bypass was forbidden, and because it was in the floodplain, the soil was rich from a millennia of siltation. Great for farming. Sheila explained that although in some years the bypass was full of water because we were having such a dry winter, the bypass was not navigable by boat, but could be traveled by foot or by vehicle. And we just happened to have access to some amazing vehicles, Sheila said with a grin while the others in her group chuckled. When the farmers died off, we got the keys to their tractors, trucks, and combines. If we decide to travel by land, we already have them ready to go. The river has been cruel to us. I wish now we'd walked all the way. Perhaps we'd all still be alive. Injected Will. If traveling by tractor allows us to avoid more attacks, I'm all for leaving the river. There seemed to be a general nodding of heads from our group. There's no guarantee that it's any safer, said Keisha. And... What will we do for boats once we get to the shipping channel? We have not been down there ourselves, but our comrades in Rio Vista tell us there are boats for the taking once we get there, answered Sheila. Shall we vote? asked Sheila, to which there was agreement. All in favor of traveling by land to the shipping channel, raise your hands. Mm-hmm. Yes. 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 Only Keisha voted against. What if we split the group? She offered to assure that someone gets through. If a boat or boats don't make it, then hopefully the tractor crew will. And if the tractors fail, maybe the boats will have better luck. There was murmuring among the group. We wish to remain with Keisha in the boat. And Keisha's other two boatmates, including young Jackson, nodded their heads in agreement. I promised his father I would take care of the boy, said Keisha in explanation. As you wish, Keisha. No one here is bound to a single course. We wish you all the best, said Sheila. Is there anyone else who would prefer the river? She asked. No one spoke up. Very well, then. Get a few hours of sleep while we go get the equipment. This afternoon, we'll transfer everything for the overland journey. An unexpected turn, but I will not miss the river or all of the pain we experienced there. Thanks again for the pleasure of your company, and don't forget to order the ebook or paperback at Amazon.com or locally in Chico at the bookstore.